from 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and I'm your host, Kate Moody, Customer Strategy Director at 11FS. Thanks for downloading this podcast. If you like what you hear, why not recommend it to a friend? This week, we're talking Czech are launching three new products to support payroll businesses. We have a world exclusive on that. Andrew, their CEO, joins us to unpack precisely what it is they've launched, the problems they're trying to solve for payroll, and the wider repercussions this has across fintech and banking more generally. JP Morgan are expanding in Abu Dhabi. Again, we're joined by a member of their team to talk us through precisely what it is they're planning to do and their perspective on the region and why it's so exciting. And Cyber Monday sets new records as buy now, pay later soars. We chat all sorts of shopping and buy now, pay later nonsense. We get into all this and much more on today's show. And welcome to episode 808 of Fintech Insider. I'm Kate Moody, Strategy Director here at LambdaFest. I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by some brilliant guests who are here to break down this week's biggest stories in fintech and financial services. Firstly, a big hello to Andrew Brown, CEO and co-founder at Check. Andrew, awesome to have you on the show. What can you tell our listeners about yourself and Check, please? Yeah, Kate, it's great to be here today. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so Check is an embedded payroll platform. And what that means is we work with companies who power small and medium-sized businesses to help them add a new line of business to their offerings. So they're able to actually provide payroll as a service as part of the wider set of things that they are providing uh, to the users on their platform. So uh, we're a a mid-stage growth startup. We've been around for about four and a half years. Our partners work with hundreds of thousands of businesses across the US, millions of employees, and we help them basically not have to deal with the crazy complex federal, state, and local tax laws that we have here in the US and just really simply focus on, you know, what work are your, you know, is your team doing and how do you get them paid in the easiest way? Awesome. Well, yeah, thank you for joining us. Um, you've got an announcement for us shortly, which I'm excited to dig into, but thanks for joining us and welcome to the show. We're also very pleased to welcome Stu Kofer, Head of EMEA Payment Specialist and Embedded Finance at JP Morgan. Stu, great to have you join us today. I'm guessing most of our listeners would have heard of JP Morgan, but talk us through specifically like your focus there and, and, and what you're working on at the moment. Sure. And firstly, thanks for having me. My favorite recent podcast of yours was live in East London at this After Dark Underground event. It was very hip and cool. So I'm hoping we can recapture some of that vibe here. And in that podcast, the banker job titles got called out for their length, but here goes. So I'm the regional head of payment specialist and embedded finance for Europe, the Middle East and Africa at JP Morgan Payments based in London. And it's a regional product role that spends a lot of client time building solutions, delivering new things to market. And for all your FinTech insider listeners, this is a business that moves $9 trillion a day. Yep, $9 trillion every day. And so the concept to land on here is that we're an enterprise-grade FinTech. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Great intro. Thanks for joining us. And last but not least, a big FinTech insider hello to Nicole Kasperson, founder and author at FinTech is Fem. Delighted to have you with us, Nicole. Thanks for, for making up the, the team for us today. Um, give our listeners a quick intro to, to you and your work, please. Sure. Thanks, Kate, for having me. I'm Nicole Kasperson. I'm an award-winning journalist, entrepreneur, and founder of Fintech is Femme, a media company and community of over 50,000 fintech professionals dedicated to creating a more equitable global financial system. So my media company curates fintech news, analysis, podcasts, and events to really elevate the voices of our fintech ecosystem. Awesome. Amen to that. Well, thanks again for joining us and super excited to get your perspective as we go through. So 
With that, let's jump into the news. Always an absolute ton of it. Our main story this week is, excitingly, a FinTech Insider exclusive, and that is Check launches new tools to help build and scale payroll businesses. Embedded payroll FinTech Check is launching a suite of new products to tackle what they see as the biggest challenges facing payroll businesses today. Their credit and fraud protection promises to ensure employees get paid faster. It includes fraud monitoring and prevention services, suspicious activity reporting, enhanced due diligence, and watch list screening. Embedded Setup is a new end-to-end offering for onboarding new or migrating existing employees to Check's payroll product. This includes pay history from any existing payroll provider to the Check-powered payroll product. And thirdly, embedded support provides a real-time channel to answer employers' payroll questions. This check claims eliminates the need for platforms to have a dedicated payroll support team. All three tools are available as of today. And you're hearing about them for the first time right here on FinTech Exciter. Awesome news. So, Andrew, thanks for joining us to to talk through this. Obviously, as CEO, I'm guessing you you kind of have some insider scoops for us on on how this works. So (laughs) I would hope. Fingers crossed. Yeah. um, I suppose... Bearing in mind, we have such a broad range of, of listeners to this show from people that have worked in finance their entire lives to people that are just getting started. So from, from that perspective, can you do your best to, to give us an explanation of, of, of what this is that will tick all of those boxes, please? Yeah, absolutely. I think we have a tendency in the fintech world to go really deep, really fast. So let, let's try and you know back up a little bit to make sure we know what we're, we're talking about here. So I think most of your listeners are going to be familiar with a paycheck. Uh, probably all of them, or most of them at least, you know, have gotten one before. Payroll is the industry that basically helps you get that paycheck. It's really working with these businesses to help them uh, deal with basically the complexity of taxes and regulation, because they have to, if you look at your paycheck, at least here in the US, you're going to have a bunch of taxes withheld from it, and those have to be remitted to all the different institutions, um, you know, primarily governments, uh, also benefit providers, folks like that. That's kind of what payroll providers do as we, we manage that complexity. So what does check do and how do we fit in here? Well, uh, the big change that has happened over the last, I would argue, 10 or so years in software, one of them anyway, has been really the verticalization of software, meaning you're not getting probably 20 years ago as a small business, you ran it on a spreadsheet. Maybe 10, 15 years ago, you used a really general purpose platform increasingly, you're now using a platform that is built specifically for you. So what I mean by that is if you're running a coffee shop, one of our partners does nothing but power coffee shops. If you run a quick service restaurant, another partner of ours does nothing but power quick service restaurants. If you run an architecture firm, another partner does just that. So given you know that rise of these vertical software platforms, what has begun to happen over the last few years is they've begun to embed financial services within within that platform that you're using to run your whole business. And payments led the way here. So all the big payments companies that I'm sure most of your listeners know, this has been you know a huge trend that they've ridden over the last uh, last really decade or so. And we're just now getting to the point where the next set of financial services, in our case, is embedded payroll are getting baked into these platforms as well. So now as a small business owner, you can you know, not only accept payments via this platform, but you can also manage your whole workforce and make sure they're paid you know, every week, uh, all with just a few clicks of a button. Yeah, it's, it's super exciting. As a, like a, a self-described customer nerd, I get so excited when you talk about this idea of like industry-specific payroll experiences. Like, I mean, what is it that having that specific 
industry focus is enabling these companies to offer differently at that moment of payroll that is so compelling, do you think? Yeah, it's mostly about saving time and headache. So I like to think about what are the things that are not going to change in the world and bet on those. And and in Check's case, I'm quite confident that business owners are not going to want to spend more time dealing with the IRS here in the US or the you know various you know state and local agencies too. I'm confident business owners are going to want to spend less time having to just like munge data and spreadsheets and move them around to different systems. Uh, and I'm quite confident the government's going to keep wanting to get paid taxes. You know, those are things we can all, I think, agree are, are going to be true. And so what we do is we basically help condense, or really our partners, we help them condense that complexity. So the way to think about it is if you want to build one payroll system to serve every business all across the U.S. and, and you know, in other countries eventually too, that's pretty hard. Turns out your two-person, you know, thing that, you know, you're part-time on that you're just getting going, but you still got to pay yourself for, does not need the exact same tool that Amazon needs to pay all of its warehouse workers, right? Uh, you know, those are very different. And so you can imagine you need a spectrum of solutions. If you try and put that all in one place, it becomes just insanely complicated. By building a platform for the first time that has enabled other businesses to build much more tailored products, they can basically get rid of the features that their customers don't need. On the other hand, go really deep into the ones that they do and just have a much easier experience then. Awesome. Nicole, what was what was your take on this story? What, what are you most intrigued to find out more about? Andrew, I think I'm most intrigued about, you know, it, especially here in the States, we have a heavy emergency savings problem. Uh, you know, the average American doesn't have $400 in case of an emergency, you know, in their bank account. That's a wild stat. Even today, right? The the average American making even $100,000 in salary lives paycheck to paycheck. I do feel like, you know, when we get more specific and more automated and more, you know, niche down, right, to go deeper into how we solve these issues, a lot of it does have to do with payroll, right? How, how do we meet customers in the familiar places that where they are at? And I feel like, you know, what's the tie in there when you're thinking about that uh, that piece. Yeah, for sure. It's, I mean, it's a massive problem. You're absolutely right. And there are things that are going on in the ecosystem, probably earned wage access being the you know best example that help folks get access to their funds faster. Um, and, and I think that uh, those can be great tools, certainly, as compared to, you know, historical payday lending type stuff that's been, you know, very predatory. I also think it's a partial solution to the problem. Folks have been trying to find kind of the quickest solution my observation and part of what we're trying to change at check is that like this whole system is built on assumptions that you're running things on literal pen and paper and then mailing forms into the IRS and like businesses have these very calcified processes set up to do that. And our view is that's not going to be the case uh, in 10 years. If you actually redo the underlying system, uh, you can start to move all of the money and all the data around a lot faster and say, okay, actually businesses can just pay you every day. You don't necessarily even need to have to deal with, you know, earned wage and things like that. So I think by providing better underlying infrastructure, better tools, it's it's going to require some patience, but eventually you're going to see a lot more businesses doing this natively. Yeah. Well, I think that can help bridge some of the, the trust element as well, right? I think we're at a very like turbulent time right now where the general sentiment around like consumer trust with really finance, right? So funny enough, finance is one of financial services is one of the least trusted industries uh, in the States, but uh, technology is the most trusted one, you know? So I, I always love the, the idea of how do we, you know, leverage the combination of fintech, right? To, to help bridge that gap, I do think fintech has that unique place 
in in the business sector to yeah to help establish that trust a bit more. For sure, it's actually it's one of the things that I think our um, partners at Check have been able to benefit most from, which is because they are so specifically built for their given industry. They're incredibly trusted um, by the folks that they work with, and they just they speak their language. They know them so well. So if you're a small business owner and you're talking to one of our our partners, the experience you have versus if you're talking to you know one of the legacy payroll companies that's been around for you know seventy five years it's just not comparable, right? The trust level is so much higher. And so being able to really build on that trust our customers have to offer better financial services, I think is it's certainly what we're doing. And I think it's what this whole embedded finance movement is really banking on. Stu, would want to give you a chance to have your have your take on this. Like what are, what are you thinking when it comes to payroll? What are you excited or, or intrigued by? When I listen to Andrew, we have kind of a shared aim. I think you mentioned, you know, you see complexity as opportunity. So do we. The other item I hear is that, you know, payroll, certainly in the companies that we talk to is undeniably important, but also nuanced. Our job is obviously to move money after the payroll payment is ready, but it's quite a nuanced journey to get there, we understand. And, you know, our companies do it directly or use use partners to get that done. And across Europe, Middle East and Africa, where I am, there's, you know, hundreds of ways to even execute your know, payroll payments after they're, you know, ready to go. I just, I find it really interesting that we're seeing the same trends, Andrew, with the immediacy of payments, the desire to be paid multiple times a day. Obviously at JP Morgan, we're connected to all of these rails, seeing a spike in, you know, episodic payments versus ad hoc, smaller value, higher volume transactions, and the ability to be paid in, in different ways, depending on your business. We have a range of companies that also, you know, wait for the payroll run at end of month, but then might include various lines of business within that from wholesale to retail. And the beneficiaries of those payments have different needs. Um, and so the ability to cater for them all is is really important. And I, I guess what I'm hearing is, you know, when there's complexity, there's opportunity and and uh, you're there to help. So are we. For sure. I, I should mention too, we use JP Morgan as our primary banking partner for, for moving this money around. So we're proud to do that. And as you said, I think choice is, is a lot of what we're talking about here. Every business has their own needs and being able to provide that choice to them and that flexibility is such a huge part of what we're, what we're trying to do. Andrew, I suppose I'd love to you know, keep out of the intro to this. It sounds like a, there's a, a real sort of fraud protection element to what you're pushing at the moment. Uh, we've not touched on that as much. So what are the particular pain points around around fraud and in, in this space that you're trying to solve for? Yeah. So let's talk about what we're launching today. So when Check first started out, our whole goal was to make it easier to build new payroll businesses. Historically, folks either had to go out and do acquisitions because payroll was so complex. You had folks like QuickBooks and Toast that did that, or you had to spend probably five years building it out on your own. And so over the last several years, Check has built out an incredibly powerful API and then followed that with a really um, broad set of deeply embeddable UI components that let you get into market with payroll in a matter of weeks instead of a matter of years. That was our first focus. But as the, the creator of this space, what we found over the past couple of years as our partners began to scale is that getting to launch is just the first part of building your payroll business. There are three follow-up pieces that I think are actually the most important parts of growing payroll over time that we're now taking the complexity off of our partner's plate. Uh, and those are the three things we're launching today. And that is credit and fraud protection, Kate, as you mentioned, embedded setup and embedded support. 
These are three incredibly burdensome operational tasks historically in the payroll industry uh, that now in the embedded model, we're able to just offer you out of the box. So I'm happy to go through them, uh, you know, one by one, maybe starting with, uh, with credit and fraud. Yeah, I mean, I suppose at the higher level, I suppose I'm especially interested in that, that credit and fraud space. We've got a couple of other stories that we're going to talk to today that touch on that. So um, in the payroll space in particular, what are you what are you hoping to fix? Yeah, so on the credit side, this is all about um, helping get folks get paid faster. Um, and for businesses, helping them really reduce the time between when their workers work and when they're able to pay them. So historically, payroll is operated on basically a, a weekly or biweekly cycle. But for the business, they're approving the hours on a Monday and typically paying folks on Friday. Um, and here in the U.S., that's largely based on the timing of returns in the ACH system. The problem is a lot of businesses, like you want to go faster than that. And especially if you have a lot of hourly workers, which many of the platforms that we do, you know, that we serve do, uh, it doesn't work. You know, they, they need to tighten that. They want folks to be able to, you know, work up until later in the week and still get paid uh, on that Friday. And so credit protection is check actually doing underwriting of those businesses to enable them to run on a two day and also on a next day cycle all without our partners having to worry about any of the NSF risk there. Um, so you can run on a two day or next day, uh, if something goes wrong and there's any sort of credit loss, check is taking that on and we're doing all of the underwriting um, associated with that. And the same is true on the fraud side. Fraud is a shockingly large problem in the, the small and medium business space for payroll. Uh, you have a slew of different ways that can happen, account takeover, fake businesses, bunch of different things. Payroll is a really juicy target because it's such a large amount of money, you know, that's being moved around. Um, and this is another thing. Historically, if you're a payroll business, you've got a line item in your financials, you know, you're just writing off fraud losses. We are taking that entirely off of our partners' books. Now check is entirely responsible, um, you know, for any fraud that may occur. And you can just worry about serving your customer. Yeah, that's super interesting. I think it's it's just a really, really, really interesting. I, I feel like we're going to almost like be at risk of like taking the whole show up on on just talking about this topic. But I mean, <laughs> I'll, I'll throw it open to Stu and Nicole. Like, are there any other particular things we want to pick Andrew's brain on before we have to move on in this run? Nicole? No, I mean, I like I said, I think that payroll is such a huge opportunity for the for that trust factor, especially as more people are just losing. Um, like trust and faith, right, in in systems. So we need to leverage these types of technologies to to bridge that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Nicole sort of touched on it earlier, Andrew, like that kind of the low savings um, resilience of, of US citizens, like we see that in other markets as well. I suppose I'm intrigued to think, obviously it's super exciting what you're launching today. Like I'm intrigued to kind of get a sense of what lies further ahead on the roadmap. Do you have any intentions to kind of intervene almost at that moment? We've seen from the work that we've done that like the moment that that paycheck lands in your account is like the almost the main moment for you to make sensible or you know, mm. helpful financial decisions for yourself. So like, are you going to stretch into that moment or do you not see that as being your place? We will go in that direction eventually. The way we think about it, our first customer is our partner. It's the platforms that we work with. And then next, we're serving these small and medium-sized business owners. And then the employees are kind of the, the third one uh, at the end. And I think what, what often is overlooked is the business owners have basically the exact same problems that, that these employees do. You would be shocked to see the balances that some of these like fairly substantial businesses have in their accounts. Like they're, they're quite low, um, right? And that's the, the infrastructure underpinning everyone having their ability to get paid in the first place. And so the power of really this verticalization of software and embedded finance 
is you can now connect those businesses' finances together. So let's say that they have a cash flow problem, you know, an invoice that they're getting paid isn't going to land until tomorrow. They need to do payroll today. Because you now have revenue and payroll going out of the same system, you can underwrite in advance to that business against the payroll, you know, in a much lower risk way than you've ever had before. And that's really powerful. That's the first step to ensuring that people are, you know, getting their paychecks on time as well. Um, so it's things like that that we think are going to be a bigger and bigger part of uh, of the, the small business ecosystem here. Yeah, no, it's um, I can see it almost, I can see it being a really difficult choice for you to make strategically, as you say, like how far down, how far down that chain you want to go. But I'm actually doing, I'm doing a project at the moment, speaking to small business owners. So actually that that pain point you describe around them, them not having the reserves or them kind of having Brello cash flow, that's yeah, super top of mind for me at the moment. My whole goal, a big part of why we started the company almost five years ago now, is we wanted to see more entrepreneurs building things in this space. Like the whole thesis was that like we didn't just go start another payroll company because I think the world has enough just pure payroll companies. We started a platform for other people to build on because we thought that's how you actually enable innovation. It's take all the complexity, make it simpler. And then, you know, our, the goal is to create an ecosystem of, you know, hundreds, eventually thousands of different companies building really cool stuff, whether it's serving the employee, whether it's serving, you know, businesses in particular industries, whether it's creating new benefits types, you know, that are going to serve certain populations. And, you know, that that's the goal and the power of what we're trying to do within payroll over the next, you know, decade and beyond. With the rise of entrepreneurship, I do feel like you're you're coming in just in time, right? You're coming at the right moment. Uh, ride the wave because, like I said, more people are trying to build their own things. And we want to see more of that entrepreneurship and we want to see the diversity in it as well. So that only happens if solutions like these work out. Awesome. Well, yeah, fingers crossed for the launch and, and yeah, that you continue to see massive uptake from here. So thanks for thanks for talking. So on to our next story, sadly, otherwise we could talk about this for the whole show. Um this one comes from Finextra, and that is JP Morgan plans to expand presence in Abu Dhabi. JP Morgan Middle East, a subsidiary of JP Morgan, has had its license upgraded to Category 1. This means they can now offer a wider breadth of services, including deposit taking and payment processing. JP Morgan Middle East already provides services, including corporate banking, security services, and payments, including treasury services and trade. The company has been operating in the Abu Dhabi global market, ADGM, since 2021, but has had a presence in the region for over a decade. Stu, unsurprisingly, come to you first on this one. Great to have you here to talk about this. Um, Despite working in fintech and financial services, when I hear the word like phrase category one, it just makes me think of like disaster films, like storms or something like that. Like, obviously that's not what this is. Um, what is the kind of practical implications of of this category one status? What does it tell us about what you want to do or are able to do now in the Middle East? It does sound big, doesn't it? And it is for us, I guess, to level set, you know, we already operate in the Middle East and we're focusing on the UAE here. And so the license signals our, our intent and commitment to the future and the size of the opportunity in, in the United Arab Emirates for JP Morgan payments. And so actually we've we've been there serving clients for more than 40 years and we just you know couldn't provide local payment capabilities. And we op- opened our office in Abu Dhabi Global Market Zone, or you might hear me say ADGM, uh, about 15 years ago. And so the license for this entity is within the ADGM. Uh, that, that entity that formed in 2021 and is going to help us support the treasury needs of in-house banks in the region. And we can you know, get into that, uh, but those outside the region connecting to it. So it's an exciting time for us to add another uh, what we call treasury hub uh, to our footprint for really sophisticated companies that have treasury you know, vertical stacks of capabilities there uh, for in-house banks of today and, and the future. 
Awesome. And I suppose what what has been the roadmap to take you to this point? Like what, you know, I'm always intrigued to kind of try and like look behind the scenes and you know, how, what has it taken to get you to this point? Sure. Well, I think, you know, let's, let's look at the region a little bit. So, you know, we're already live in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and, and that's a strategic hub for companies that are headquartered there or multinational companies that need to operate there. And so UAE is a complement for the region and, you know, it's a similar attraction for companies that are headquartered there in the ADGM. And if you look at that, you can see it's a space for innovation, companies to start up. There's a lot of tech. It's very modern and they, you know, incorporate there. Um, it's governed by English law. And so, you know, attracts a lot of businesses and businesses need, you know, bank accounts and to make payments and to manage their, their cash. So we're seeking to operate there too, as well to connect them to the globe where we're, we're present in a lot of places. And so for us, it's kind of about optionality for our clients and where they would like to book. And when I say to book, it's really, you know, open up a bank account and be contracted with a, with a bank there and letting them work with us on global platforms so we can give them a consistent offer. And, you know, that within the ADGM, there's really tremendous growth and treasury sophistication. And so for those of you who have heard in-house banks and maybe not, you know, risen out of your chairs listening, said, wow, he said in-house banks. These are, you know, spiraling companies that have many entities with a lot of payments, a lot of receipts, and eventually they grow like a puppy with big feet to understand that there's a benefit in centralizing, uh, minimizing FX exposure by simplifying and reducing the amount of payments, getting better pricing on those payments by reducing the amount of traffic they have. And a lot of these companies will create a finance entity within themselves that acts like a bank for the rest of the company. Well, guess what that in-house, in-house for the company, bank needs. They need you know, a bank in the market to be able to provide them a wide range of currency services, payments, you know, uh, real treasury and finance kind of uh, activity. And you know, when you consider that location from a sophistication perspective, a time zone perspective, it's you know, a, a next step for us that we're really excited about. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and again, you know, we have a very global listener base. You know, for people maybe that don't spend as much of their time focused on on this region as, as you do, like, what is it? You know, are there particular nuances to kind of corporate banking in the region that you guys are particularly trying to address, or, or are going to take forward with this with this new license capability? Yeah, sure. So you know, wholesale banking and you know the kinds of companies it serves, they have the mandate to be responsible for the company's cash and treasury management. At its most basic is get the right currency in the right place at the right time. Andrew mentioned you funding for payroll, but there's funding for everything, you know, applying invoices, receipts coming in. And the point of in-house banks is they try to net or manage that across a whole group. They manage the whole group's position. And so the kind of capabilities that we're building there, like virtual accounts and, you know, liquidity solutions and a wide range of payment rails connecting into there to support all the currency needs of the group, you know, not just that, that one entity of one company in one place, that aggregate need of the group, that's what the real, the real capture is here for us. And the capability build that we're, we're starting is really to service um, those kind of clients. So you know, it's a nice springboard. Um, companies have seized the opportunity to be there and launch really modern businesses. And you know, a modern business learns from the past, tries to create global central models that are really efficient. And so you know, this is, this is a really sophisticated upper end of wholesale banking that needs a pretty specific set of treasury services from you know a, a reliable partner, and we'd like you know to think that that's us. Um, and so you know here this is part of our strategy to to capture that. And so that's why it's our plan to meet companies like that there in the ADGM, both physically and 
also really in mindset. Yeah, for sure. Um, Nicole, would love to kind of get your take on this. Like, obviously, we've seen lots of focus on on this region, you know, increasingly trying to sort of compete with London, New York, where you're based. What What's your perception of, of what's going on there right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think really more of a question. Uh, Stu, earlier you are saying you know, the treasury needs of in-house banks in that region do, obviously, right, they're going to differ. And there's even cultural implications, right, that you have to navigate and, and deal with when expanding offerings in these places. But I also think there's so much to learn from, you know, what can we learn from, you know, the U.S. or Europe and what differs from Abu Dhabi and how do you, you know, make those applications and, and decide what makes the most sense. But I'd be curious, you know, what are the different different uh, treasury needs of those in-house banks um, and how do they actually differ from the U.S. and Europe and if there's anything to learn from one another. Sure. I mean, let's let's talk about the context here. So first, you know, it's a very interesting side by side. We won't compare London or New York or, you know, any of the other financial hubs. It's the longest list ever. But if you look at the challenges, you know, at least U.S., you have a single currency, massive, um, you know, market to think about. And all of your entities generally are trading in, in a single currency. Elsewhere, you know, certainly where I sit, Europe, Middle East and Africa, it's implicitly never that. It is by default an omni or multi-currency situation where you might be long in one currency and short in another for a time, you know, a minute, a second, a day, a month. Any of these things require you to think very differently around the group cash and the mandate of an in-house bank, uh, not only sometimes to do its payments or manage its risk or handle its foreign exchange exposure or, or secure credit, is also to secure partners for certain corridors or areas of the world where you can kind of make banking a little bit more of a commodity service. So the in-house bank is to try to be a really smart buyer for the company. And so when it's trying to do that in the U.S., it only has one currency to deal with. Yes, there's a lot of breadth there. But anywhere else in the world that you go, you're implicitly faced with multi-currency challenges. You have multiple payment rails to plug into. You also implicitly don't have companies incorporated in different states. They're in different countries. And so you're facing different rules. If you think about, you know, you're an in-house bank, Nicole, and let's say Andrew is one of your internal customers and Kate is another. When Andrew is long in a currency, Kate might be short in that currency. And then if you make a payment on behalf of one of those uh, entities, if we can call Andrew and Kate an entity, (laughs) uh, that would mean maybe you're extending them credit. And what's your relationship based on where you are, uh, you know, in your country versus where they are incorporated and extending that credit? Now, that's You know, that's something that you need to think about. But at the end of it, you're going to have a payment to make. You're going to have a surplus of cash. You might have a deficit. And so I think really the the challenges that you face, you know, outside of the U.S. um, and certainly in UAE are are kind of similar when you look at what we call like a multi-currency treasury hub. So you need, you know, a place to put your bank accounts. You need multiple currencies. You need to have a single view of all that. And so some of our solutions like, like virtual accounts, enable a customer to, you know, minimize the number of bank accounts, but retain what we like about multiple bank accounts, which is that there's an isolated ring fence position or report. You know, you know what's in there. Andrew, a lot of companies, I think, make payroll accounts their own thing to kind of ring fence and be able to account and reconcile that. So in an in-house bank situation, you know, virtual accounts give you the integrity of discrete data, but they don't come with the, you know, the liquidity consequence, which is you have to worry about how much money is in one account or another. And so when you're an in-house bank, you, you just, we think, want a partner that you can rely on to give you one set of services, be at the other end of the pipe, handle all of your payments, reliably manage your cash. 
long answer. Well, no, I think it's worth the nuances, right? And 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 understand, letting, making sure that our audience here, right, understands those. Because I do think that we're at a time when, where if you're building, you know, in fintech in America, and you've already you're well established here, people are looking, right? They're looking. Okay, what's the next emerging market or market that I want to expand to? How do we grow? Um, and then vice versa, you know, if you're in Europe or or Asia, you know, how do I make an implant in in the an imprint in the uh, U.S.? So that's we need to understand, you know, what are the major differences? What are these, even the cultural nuances, you know, even thinking of things like, oh, pay, like the types of currencies are so different and how they have to uh, navigate like throughout each other. So I think we don't always think about those, those different nuances when we're like, hey, you know what, I'm so excited to announce that I'm expanding to Europe um, and it should be just turnkey, right? Like it should be exactly the same as, you know. Just to, I mean, to excitedly interrupt you there, Nicole, it was really to say, yeah. I mean, these are things that maybe we as consumers don't see. The in-house bank is always kind of behind the scenes. You know, the local entity might be the beachhead expanding into the U.S. from, you know, the United Arab Emirates, for example, or you could go in reverse, expand somewhere else. But that entity is going to need capital. It's going to need cash, and it might be funded by someone else in the group. So it's not crazy to think about, you know, an in-house bank that has a global responsibility to take funding from one part of the company and allow another part of the company to grow and expand. I mean, the in-house bank has a really big, you know, role in, in doing that. And so to us that are interacting usually with what we might call like an operating entity or, you know, the store on the corner or, you know, the website that we see, all of those entities are part of a big company group. And then the finance entity is really, you know, providing that fuel in the engine for them to operate. And here the fuel is cash. It's totally resonating for me just as a, a customer and as a financial services provider. We're focused on the U.S. today, but we have exactly this. We have a subsidiary. It is what we move our money through. It holds our licenses. And certainly we think about global expansion. And, um, you know, as we look at other markets, we're looking for exactly this. We have banking providers, you know, here in the U.S. today. We're looking, at, OK, how can you, you know, minimize the number of relationships, minimize the number of rails while having the most choice in other markets? And, you know, whether it's the UAE or, or elsewhere, uh, being able to do that with, you know, you know one provider and, and JP Morgan is uh, would certainly be very attractive for us. I've, this, is, this is literally what I've this is literally what I've been trying to do as we've been having this this conversation, like watching your face, Andrew, to kind of work out if everything that Stu is describing is making you think not the UAE, not the UAE, not the UAE in terms of like like where you go next. But, um, you know, we follow our partners, so we'll follow where they have customers. In our case, I think Canada will probably be before the UAE just, you know, based on uh, geographic uh, presence. But it's it's these exact capabilities are what we want in every market, I think, that, that we will enter. Absolutely. Well, on that bombshell, we're just going to take a quick pause here. We'll be back very shortly. Welcome back. Before we get into the second half of the news, a note to go check our most recent FinTech Insider Insights show. David Embrier, CEO here at LMNFS, is joined by some excellent guests from Aon, Alloy and Tech UK to discuss that oh-so-tricky balance between regulation and innovation. They discuss the importance of regulation and being able to support and encourage innovation, but also discuss the impact of too much or too little regulation on the industry. So go check out that episode in our podcast feed. It's the one just below this one. Okay, let's get back into the news. This story comes from Fintech Global, and that is Australian banks roll out new scam protection measures with the Scam Safe Accord. 
Community-owned banks, building societies, credit unions and commercial banks have joined forces to launch the new anti-scam measures in Australia. The Scam Safe Accord includes measures such as increased controls on new and increased payment limits, enhanced ID processes including biometric checks for new accounts, an industry-wide commitment to share intelligence to tackle fraud. Additionally, the Accord also includes the implementation of a new $100 million system to verify the identity of payees. The measures were brought in as a proactive measure against the increasing sophistication of financial crime. Stu, I'll come to you first on this one. I suppose the thing that naturally pops up as the first question is, especially given our intro about our show that we've just done on, on regulators, you know, why... Why has this fallen to the banks to do? Why has the Australian regulator not been leading this, or have they? Well, you know, I think here that the work the Australian Banking Association has done is a, a strong example of the industry coming together to address not just a market issue, but really a, a global one. So, you know, a proactive approach helps banks implement something that can service the market as a whole and learn from experiences of other markets who have adopted similar approaches. So this is bigger than Australia. And if I think about two examples closer to me, the UK waited for regulation to enforce confirmation of payees. So if any of you have lived in the UK, you know that when you try to add a payee in your mobile banking app, it comes back before you've moved any money and it says the name on the account matches or it doesn't. The original implementation of that was challenged and caused some friction through the payment chain. And that was due to liability concerns. You know, after the payments authorized, who's responsible, the, the bank that had a true authenticated message from the customer or you know, the, the beneficiary. It's, it's actually quite an interesting debate. And so it was, it was highly politicized, uh, which arguably added to trust issues by consumers. And so if, if you then shift and you look at the Netherlands, similar to Australia, the banks initiated this service proactively, and that enables the sector to set up a smart design and implement kind of a quality product across the industry as a whole without contending with the politicization politicization and interpretation issues. Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting example to throw into the mix. Nicole, do you think um, this kind of you know, security scam you know, space is, is overly politicized? Uh, I feel like we just need to like be thinking about how are we more proactive instead of reactive when it comes to fraud, right? And when it comes to um, making sure that we're protecting people. Yes, it is overly politicized when it really is needs to be as simple as we have a responsibility as an industry to protect people, to protect people's finances and to also protect our businesses. So like, let's do what we got to do to make that happen. And in fact, we should also be using technology to make that happen, given the innovative sector that we are. I mean, I was asked uh, at an event a few weeks ago if I was given $10 million uh, to be able to invest in any kind of, you know, fintech innovation, what would I do? And honestly, like my answer would be biometrics. You know, how do we actually leverage that capability to stop fraud, you know, it's never going to stop, but you know what I mean, to help mitigate it, to help actually be proactive around it, you know, even in a, on, a, on smaller scales, you know, globally, I've seen smaller fintech companies that, you know, purposefully operate to help bring more uh, women from like farms and villages and rural areas across emerging markets to help bring them into the financial ecosystem. They're doing that through biometrics because they don't have any formal identification. And that's the only way that they can make that happen. And you can even use biometrics to help with things like domestic violence because you can help create some real protections and some, anyways, I'm going a little on a tangent about why I would pay $10 million to invest in biometrics. But point being, I think we need to like 
rid this, you know, we have to stop over politicizing things that are really just designed to help people. <laughs> we want less fraud, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I, not, how, how can you disagree with that? You know, things, yeah. things we all should be on the same page about. Yeah. I mean, I think this is really interesting to see. I mean, I'm interested to see how this plays out given the breadth of different financial organizations this covers. So, you know, Stu, kind of, as I'm sure you're aware, it's probably quite a big difference between some of these like big commercial banks in Australia versus some of these community-owned building societies. What sort of challenges does that create to kind of negotiate something like this when you've got banks with such a broad spectrum of capabilities and customers and priorities and strategies and all of the above? You know, for me, it's it's really early to tell. I mean, you know, this hasn't happened without consultation with regulatory authorities and schemes. So it's a positive story of the industry working together. Yes, it will be harder for some than others, to your point. Uh, and But the objective, we all know, is to make the whole market less appealing to fraudsters. And so the, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, I believe, was the one that authorized support for this back in August. So, I mean, if you think that the spirit is right, it's one of the old adages, let's get everybody on the bus and then decide where, where to go. And even if we stumble a little bit in the beginning, it's going to be better for the end uh, consumer. I think, you know, if you look at some of the other initiatives we've seen, if, if you know, we're willing to learn from other markets, mistakes and successes, I think, you know, people will be better off in, in the end. And it's, it's nice to kind of see in, in some cases competing to ensure that everyone is protected more from fraud. Everybody's for it. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Andrew, we've been talking about some, you know, individual countries here, um, you know, what, what Australia is doing. You know, Stu shared some examples from like the UK, the Netherlands. Is this, is this the right approach? Like, can we actually solve these problems at a national level when, you know, the world is so connected now and, you know, I'm assuming criminals aren't necessarily just, you know, sat in their country going, oh, well, I can only do Australia, like, better, yeah. better just stay here. Like, is it, do we need more global solutions? I mean, I've been thinking a lot about this because we talked earlier, you know, we're literally today announcing a credit and fraud protection program. This is uh, the other side of the world, a whole different approach to that, you know, perspective of how you stop fraud. In the U.S., we don't have any of this today. And so it comes to, you know, companies like ours for different use cases, you know, to try and protect the customers that we serve. Whether it's done at a a bank level, a national level, or a global level, I think the more cooperation you have there, the better. And clearly, we're a very global, you know, society at this point. And if you can get folks working together, all the better. But at the same time, like, I think Problems often get solved by breaking them down into smaller pieces. And we have, like, we're just still kind of in the dark ages in a lot of places, I feel like, on this. And so if you can get, you know, a country, in this case, you know, Australia coming together to fix it, I would love to start with more countries doing the the same thing, whether it's the regulators or the banks. Andrew, can I jump in there? I think, you know, we, we absolutely should. I wondered, you know, if we could think about, you know, industries. So the reality of some of the scams is that they might start, you know, within the ecosystem of, of industries that would usually pay each other. And then there's some social media or telecom like engineering. Financial services and payments are engaged after the scam has been executed. And then the person has authorized the transaction to take place. So, you know, if we focus globally, that that's fine. But to prevent scams, I mean, the focus should be broader than financial services, we think. Uh, Nicole, your point on identity was really an interesting one. I think so much of even card payment friction now is confirming some of the multiple factors of authentication. Is it you, where you are, and the device that you have? These come at a point of a transaction, which is kind of too late, right? Your things are in the basket, they're ready to go, the shipping address has been 
already selected. So I do think an earlier sequence of introduction of digital ID would have a part to play as well as understanding in an industry, what's the ecosystem of players that are naturally interacting with each other? You know, what if you could, I don't want to pick on one, but if you looked at, you know, a, a business to consumer, a consumer to business flow of a utility company or, or other things. I mean, could you, like Andrew said, break the problem down into smaller pieces uh, to try and attack it more holistically. Mm, I mean, you could say that about, that's like a really good way of thinking about like anyone listening to this and building in fintech or, you know, in, or any sector of it, you know, you could really think of that. How do you always think about fixing smaller problems? Because at the end of the day, like there's never going to be one giant, you know, uh, company plan or business model or one giant thing that's going to tackle all of the crazy issues of our uh, world, especially something as large as fraud and something as continuous as fraud and scams. So, um, you know, how, like think smaller, think communal, you know, think about how we work a little bit more together. And because it's it's those everyday steps, you know, right, those everyday uh, smaller pieces that are going to get us to the bigger picture faster than thinking, okay, I gotta get to this, the, the post-it board, and think of this giant thing, think a little smaller and let that expand further. Yeah, I think, um, I suppose as you were talking, Stu, about you know, this you know, need for this smarter form of identity, I suppose I was thinking, does the rapid uptake of digital wallets just make this even more pressing? Like, just again, like to disclose like a personal bias, like a member of my family recently, like this week, you know, had an account takeover, a card added to a digital wallet, and everything is now completely completely suspended. So, yeah, I suppose to pick a, a payments payments person's brain, like what where does the rise of digital wallets kind of fit into this picture? Is this making? I assume it's making the, the challenges more complex. I think you know it's interesting to think you know outside in 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 one sense. So you know you as a consumer having a wallet and then appending your card to that wallet. But when money goes into that wallet or stored value, I guess is probably a better term. Where is it? Really, you know, has it left your bank account? Does it centrally sit somewhere? The company that has that cash to the company, it's not all theirs, it's yours. So I think as you then step in a little bit and think about whoever's providing that wallet and where that cash sits on their balance sheet, you start to kind of realize like who's really responsible for the risk here. And, and if you're a consumer thinking about placing your own value with someone, are they regulated? And then your next question is who buy? And in the subtext, you might eventually see, you know, some of those have a bank behind them, you know, a regulated financial institution. But again, you know, who and where, and it should be transparent. So the idea here, though, is I think I, I think it comes down to trust, right? We're, we're a bank. We recognize that. There are a lot of places out there which can propose really interesting ways to do things with value that you store. But keep in mind, you know, cash regulated by a central bank emanates from the center and can be with a certain provider, should be with somebody that you trust. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, we're not going to sadly solve fraud on, on this show. So I think we'll, we'll have to park it for now and come back we to it. We got one another... step closer though. We got one step closer. One step closer. We solved payroll <laughs> fraud, payroll fraud, and maybe Australian fraud. So like we're on our way. Andrew's we're on like, our way. Excuse yeah. me. Excuse me. Remember all the things I said at the top. Yeah. No. Okay. I think we're okay. I'm, I'm, I'm accepting that as solid progress. So I think, I think we can move on to our next story now. And that comes from Crew, and that is Crew Bank surpassed £2 million in their first round of crowdfunding. The final figures saw investment come from over 45 countries and 2,702 investors who contributed on average over £740. This exceeds our initial target by 200%. 
Crew are a digital bank in the UK founded in 2016 and have been operating with a full UK banking license since 2022. So far, the bank has raised £72 million in funding. Their latest crowdfunding campaign meant you could invest in the bank with as little as £10. They currently boast £800 million in current account deposits across 145,000 customers. Um, so funny, actually, though, with this, we had this story on the news today because I was literally just talking to somebody about Crew Bank the other day. So it felt like a sort of a moment of, of I don't know what the right phrase is for it, but um, serendipity, we shall have it. Um, Nicole, what's what's your take on, on Crew? Have you been impressed by what they've done so far? Uh, I mean, I'm really more interested in the part where they raise their first round of crowdfund, like through crowdfunding, you know, that's like pretty interesting. When I think about that, it reminds me of, uh, and for seeing this, it reminds me of a uh, story that uh, Sally Krawcheck, the CEO and founder of Elevis, shared with me when she was uh, raising her Series B. Uh, you know, uh, we all know that pesky stat, and it's this. You know, it's the same over in in the UK, where uh, only two percent of women receive VC funding, and uh, so it also requires us to get a little bit more uh, crafty with how we raise funding, right? When we're dealing with you know some some uh, discrepancies with with VCs, but what Sally ended up doing in Elevest is she ended up raising her uh, Series B, which was fifty three million dollars last year, through like six hundred angel investors who all formed different SPVs to be able to invest in Elevest. And so, you know, when you share those stories and you share like, hey, even someone of her stature, like someone who's been like one of the most famous women and powerful women on Wall Street, still struggling to, you know, find how she raises, you know, it's, it's, I think it's worthwhile to note like, hey, there's these other ways of doing it, even though VC is typically the way to go. And just getting a little bit more interesting and, and crafty with that and, and knowing, hey, there's other ways to, to go about this and raise money and make your company, you know, get off the ground. So um, that is the side. I know I didn't really answer your question, but that's something that I found really interesting about when I'm reading this, when I'm seeing this headline is, you know, crowdfunding, if you like read, I I teach at Parsons um, Finance Management and Business uh, and in like the textbooks that we read, it's like crowdfunding is considered like, maybe don't do that (laughs) because it's like, it can be challenging. It can be risky, all of those things, but times are changing. Maybe there's a there's some, it's something to look into because I get a lot of messages from even like the women in my community around how can I think about raising differently? Yeah, no, I think it's a super important question. Andrew, I mean, crowdfunding, yay or nay? Yeah, I, I was going to say, I think this is, in some ways, this is a new uh, concept, but that's been around for a long time, just under different names. You know, the, the US, right, we have uh, thousands of banks all across the country. It's unusual compared to, to most places. And a lot of the reason for that is our banks are, in many cases, hyper-local. They're local sort of credit unions and collectives formed around largely real estate in the local area, in many cases, farming in the local area. And so, yes, maybe back in the 50s, they didn't call it crowdfunding. You know, they called it a local bank, but it was not dissimilar in terms of what was going on, right? And so to me, this is really recognizing the importance that people and community have always played in banking and sort of the central role that banks play in society and bringing that into, you know, the modern digital online connected age. And so I'm I'm excited to see the innovation here. Yeah. Stu, obviously, if you've got a strong opinion on crowdfunding, throw it into the mix but I'm keen as someone that is UK based you know have you been watching crew are you are you intrigued by what they're doing I think you know crowdfunding like Nicole said it's an interesting way to raise capital um, especially when VC money is, is maybe hard to obtain I, I just had a couple of thoughts 
which was, you know, do investors understand the risks? I thought, Nicole, that example that you mentioned about, you know, really, really supportive SPVs, 600 of them, is similar to what I was thinking about. But, but you know, investors, do they understand the risks? Are they aware of how difficult it might be to, to exit? Um, you know, private company investments far less liquid than than retail investors might be used to. But, you know, it could create really loyal customers and active advocates for the company. And so that, you know, would make a great marketing tool. Uh, and then also, you know, the funded companies can tap into that investor base for really good insights, development opportunities from a population that's motivated to contribute with good ideas and see the company thrive. So it's, it's an interesting angle on funding, I have to admit. Mm, yeah, like will crew make not just like banking cool, but make the kind of almost like just capture and capitalize on the part where now the, you know, the the consumer and uh, the the culture that we're seeing, right, is shifting towards people wanting to leverage their financial tools as a source for, you know, helping companies that they believe are going to contribute to the greater good. So, you know, is that what they're going to make cool? That would be cool, um, <laughs> you know, if they could make that happen. But um yeah, we'll have to. Well, Nicole, we'll have to see. I heard you say make banking cool. So I'm going to take a risk here <laughs> and declare that this podcast is helping people realize how cool banking already is. And that challenges my modesty. It's what I meant. It's yeah. what, thank you for the, let me correct myself. I mean, <laughs> banking is already cool. Um, to make it cooler is. <laughs> What we is what I actually only joking. Yeah. Only joking. Okay. No, no, it's fine. We're going to get that made into t-shirts. That's that's all good. Um, Make banking cooler. Cooler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I we had Andrea, the CEO of of Crew, on. I've completely lost track of the passing of time, but I think the last time they did a, a raise, um, oh no, sorry, it was when they got their UK banking license and he came on and he talked us through kind of the, the initial offering. And I, I was really impressed. Um, I think it's especially interesting what they're doing around just having the interest paid directly onto the current account. He talked very clearly and compellingly about you know, the pain point that I see when I speak to customers, you know, the vast majority of customers just don't have the mental headspace to sit down and work out like, you know, Andrew, like your salary lands into your checking account. How much of that do you want to move into a savings account? What do you need to leave in your in your checking account or your current account to pay your bills? Like most people just aren't making that calculation in the smartest, savviest way. And yeah, that was what Andrea was saying. Crew have just decided to try and eliminate, like they're just going to not give you the need to have a savings account. Just sit your money in your current account. They've got the mechanics allegedly behind the scenes to to kind of roll with that and to kind of calculate interest on on a daily basis, pay it monthly. So yeah, I did not invest. I feel like I feel like I should, given how like complimentary I'm being, I should declare that. But I I do think they they're certainly chasing some really interesting concepts, and it does feel quite different to to what we're seeing from some of the other UK fintechs. I think that's been a criticism when we see new people come into the market that they've not managed to do anything that different. You know, I'm not just saying this because you're history, but we, we saw that with Chase, that they came in with this hook around, you know, cashback, which in the UK on a debit card is is sadly rare. And then also that kind of interesting you know, interest on roundups, you know, things which are seem relatively small can still cut through um, the the inertia in the UK market. So yeah, I'm, I'm really rooting for them. I suppose I probably sh- you know, can't hide that. Like I really am impressed by you know, Andrea as a as a leader and kind of how he sets things out and and sort of how they're setting out at the beginning. But I don't know. Am I being overly optimistic, Stu? You know the UK market very well, right? Like it's the UK digital banking market is crowded, as you said. It's challenging to gain significant traction, differentiate. However, you know, Chase UK proved it's possible. You offer something different and headline grabbing. 
Um, and it's, it's also tough, you know, for anyone in an environment where investors are focused on profitability, not just revenue, uh, and to compete on being cool <laughs> versus other brands, which, which already have a following and some of the competition, I mean, I'm, I'm as human as anyone else. I, you know, check into the, the tube swiping in and out. And eventually you see a really shiny debit card go across and it just, it catches your eye. You know, you think, what was that? And it rattles around in your brain for a little bit. It's, it's edge case innovation in a really, really crowded space. But, you know, I feel like we have a front row seat to innovation here in the UK with digital banking. It's exciting to see what's going to happen. Yeah. Andrew, does this kind of reputation for the UK exist outside or is it just like internal perspective, us, us giving ourselves a big clap on the back? <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm not certainly the expert on uh, on UK banking. I do think from the outside, uh, you know, you've been I think further ahead on some of the open banking rules and our, uh, you know, I don't know the, the US regulators have a hard time kind of getting their act together. And we do have so many banks here; it's it's hard for anything. You know, look at FedNow to to get adoption. So in that regard, I'm I'm certainly jealous, and uh, I'm excited for more innovation and and more markets. You know, along a similar lines. Awesome for sure. Okay, well, now for a section of the show called Big Click Energy, a quick look at some more click-worthy news. Did I say something weird? I'm going to start again now. No, I'm so sorry. Big Click Energy is so hilarious. I just love it. So I completely (laughs) understand the joke, so I laughed because... I okay. am it's, mature. It's taking all I've got. Yeah. It's taking all I've got to not laugh when I say it. I'm and so, now you're, yeah, you're making it really difficult for me. Really good so. job, Kate. Really well done. You are a professional. I'm so sorry. I'm not going to be able to. I'm not going to be able to do it again now. So we've ruined it. Okay, I'll have a go. Okay. I'll have a go. You stay quiet. Okay. Okay. Now for big click energy. A quick look at some more click worthy news this week. The story this week comes from FinTech Times, embedded sustainability FinTech Echo and Tusk curate portfolio of African conservation projects. Echo, a UK embedded sustainability FinTech, is teaming up with conservation firm Tusk. The new partnership will see the curation of a portfolio of African conservation projects, which Echo clients can choose to support. The portfolio includes projects covering 13 countries with a focus on anti-poaching, conservation tech and community-driven conservation. FinTech has an incredibly exciting role to play in our global challenge to be more sustainable, says Echo CEO Ollie Cook. Combining forces with the incredible teams at Tusk to bring sustainability to every payment in the world has the potential to make a seismic impact on one of the most important challenges facing the global community. I mean, I... I feel like it wouldn't go down well if I was anything but positive about this. It, it sounds on paper like a super, super cool offering. Um, really, I hadn't actually spent a huge amount of time looking at Echo before, but actually reading kind of through what they're doing, I think it's really interesting. Kind of they've got a split of their offering between you know, employers, like trying to help employers. And Andrew recommend having a having a look if if you guys haven't clocked them already. Kind of trying to help employers embed sustainability benefits into into their offerings and and partnering with fintechs as well. Um, so yeah, I think I think a really interesting partnership in in this directly, but also really intrigued by kind of how they're going to market. And they've got some pretty cool branding as well. So all in all, not much to critique and wish them well with with the partnership. Okay, now it's time for the and finally section of the show. A look at something more offbeat from the news this week. But first, before we jump into this week's story, a quick look back to last week where we discussed the Rock and Acorns launching a new metal debit card. Our panel last week didn't really get what the fuss was about, and as it turns out, neither do you. We ran a poll asking if you've ever paid for a metal debit or credit card, and a whopping 81.81% of you said no. So, yeah, I think we just wanted to give out a shout out this week. We didn't have time to kind of cover the stats last week. Anyone? Stu, Andrew, Nicole, have you guys you guys bought the trend and got a metal card? Never. Haven't. I have one. 
<laughs> I'm in the minority. Sorry who... <laughs> to screw up the stats, but I'll admit it. Yep. Oh, what what kind of metal is it? Well, it was the the Chase Sapphire. You know, they they had such a good bonus a few years ago. Like you had, I think you're crazy not to sign up for it, right? So did that, and you know, that's that's what they sent me. I can't say metal was the attraction, but. I don't mind it. I mean, if you'd had the benefits and the rock signature printed on it, I feel like that would have just been <laughs> like the dream come true. Um, okay, okay, we'll move on to this week's. We'll move on to this week's story. Um, I could talk about the rock all day, and we'll definitely get in trouble for doing so. So, this week's story it comes from Forbes, and that is buy now, pay later, or BNPL. If you like your acronyms, fuels an all-time spending record for Cyber Monday. U.S. consumers spent a record. $12.4 billion, wow, online during the traditional Cyber Monday sales. This is a 9.6% increase on 2022. The retail holiday is the first Monday following Thanksgiving, where consumers can purchase many items, including the latest tech, at a substantial discount. Of the record sales this year, $940 million was made up from buy now, pay later purchases, a massive 42.5% increase on last year. Stu, like I remember in your intro, you were throwing out some pretty crazy numbers for the amount of money that you guys move around. So maybe this doesn't seem like a lot of money to you. What, what was your what was your take on this? No, it does. It's it's amazing, right? I mean, I was I was thinking about Cyber Monday and you know what purchase I bagged, and um, you know I I cycle a bit. And before you yawn about that, I know how cyclists can be sometimes. Um, it was two degrees Celsius Saturday morning, so I went and I got some new warm cycling kit. And that was the bargain, but the site didn't offer buy now, pay later. If it did, I, I would have used it, you know, the, the price of cycling kit. Um, and I think, you know, like most things buy now, pay later has been growing and it's an adoption for, for a couple of drivers, awareness, uh, accessibility. So what, what failed <laughs> on when, um, went on my purchase and then affordability. And so that, you know, there's no doubt that the, the recent financial squeeze and cost of living has, um, made individuals uh, think about this and the need for buy now pay later, um, but it's it's now being used for you know essential goods purchases, which is not necessarily cycling kit, um, and previously you know to some more luxury ones. And so I think with the the focus on e-commerce and the openness to use buy now pay later, it um, it's really changed the consumer's pers- perspective certainly on credit. You know, obtaining a bank credit to purchase historically might have been viewed one way, somewhat as a negative, and then. Buy now, pay later, change the perception from being a true credit extension to more of a pay-as-you-use kind of experience or try-before-you-buy. It's an interesting mindset shift we've seen. Uh, and so the customer experience is, is really playing a role here too. Um, you know, it's a completely separate thing to obtain credit before, but now it's, you know, within your shopping journey, journey you know, embedded single experience in checkout. It eliminates friction to a purchase. Yeah, almost like alarmingly so. But wait, we definitely cannot debate buy now pay later and like in this in this section it'll get it'll get too too hairy. Um Andrew, did you pick up any bargains? What what was your what was your shopping spree like? I, I didn't do a ton of shopping this year, but it is amazing the deals. I once bought a TV, it was like fifty percent off on uh, one of these Cyber Monday deals. I'm like, you know, I, I don't know. I'm sort of the skeptical consumer though. When you show me that, I'm like, wait, so you're just charging me way too much the rest of the year? You know, like it definitely <laughs> trains you to wait. So I, I have mm. questions about some of the retailers there. Uh, but yeah, that was my best bargain. I just can't handle the pressure now. I feel like it. It puts the pressure on you to like do your Christmas. Maybe this is a UK thing, but it puts pressure on you to do like your Christmas shopping in November, which I am just like I'm not ready for. Like I have not decided what I want to buy for anybody, and I feel like the kind of the the part of my brain is just screaming like like buy it now, buy it now, and I'm I'm just not ready. So it kind of yeah, 
it makes me feel like I've failed, which is probably probably just me being overly self-critical. I don't know. Nicole, are you are you a pro Black Friday, Cyber Monday person or or not? I mean, I'm not like it's not necessarily, I'm not like really, I'm kind of neutral about it. Like the Black Friday and, and Cyber Monday, what, what fun, uh, what's fun consumerism days, uh, especially here in the, in America, it's part of our culture. Um, but, you know, I think you know, to, to Stu's point, when we're using buy now, pay later in these things to be able to help with more of the, you know, uh, everyday purchases or like things like groceries and that kind of those essential needs, I feel like it's super, super helpful. Right. And then, um, but the other side of it is like just being careful because folks need to have that education. They need to understand because buy now, pay later can get a little sticky. Right. If and I'm like underplaying it a little because we're not getting heated on this chat uh, at this moment. But <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I just think, you know, it can it can lead to maybe some analysis paralysis or it can lead to, you know, other, you know, just bad things that um, if people don't understand how it works, you know, if they don't understand how credit works, how are they, are, do, do we need to have more education around how buy now, pay later works and that kind of thing. So um, have I ever been tempted to use it as a bargain? Have I done it before? Absolutely. But I also am deeply knowledgeable about this space, uh, which to Andrew's point also sometimes makes me go, oh, I'm too knowledgeable about this space. I shouldn't do this or I need to wait. So it's actually kind of funny. I can be both like, I know so much about this. Absolutely. And I can also be like, Ooh, I know too much. I must take a step back. So yeah, giving that knowledge to others. We need to give that knowledge to others. Yeah. Hearing you say that, Nicole, I, I'm in the opposite camp where I'm like, I know everything about BNPL. I should absolutely use it. Interest rates are high. You're giving me a 0% mm. low. Like, why would I not? And yet, yeah, I actually never have. So that's, I got to I've got some questions for myself. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to put it all on you, Andrew, to fix this, but I do have this deep seated conviction that actually buy now pay later if it integrated directly into your salary would become this almost like perfect tool to distribute costs more effectively because i think the thing that people struggle with is keeping track of like multiple different credit obligations but actually if everything you owed just came straight from your salary and what lands back in your account is what you've got left to play with like i think i've i've not i've not designed it yet like it, obviously that would be a super complex journey to get right but I really, really think that actually if you can integrate buy now, pay later into that moment of your salary landing, automatically kind of paying off those commitments, it would kind of change the game for a lot of these people that are struggling mm. with it right now. All right, Stu and Andrew. If you want to build a new payroll company, you know, there's uh, <laughs> I hear there's a platform for doing sounds that, like, Kate. Sounds oh, like... <laughs> you've got a head of innovation role going. Kate's <laughs> trying to found a, a payments company. Oh, no. Or maybe, I don't know. Yeah. That doesn't sound like the best idea alongside a full-time job and looking after a toddler. I, I'm not sure that's going to go down well. But no. um, All of your listeners, new business idea. If you want one, Kate just gave it to you. Yeah, for free. You have it, guys. You go for it. Stu, you got any got any reflections to to close us out on not really no <laughs> he spilled it out now it's all already been laid on the table i'm just thinking about that opportunity you talked about and then you know the highly politicized issue of christmas shopping in november i think that's what i leave with a contentious spirit you know that it's quite a quite a heated debate much more politicized than fraud mm, that one makes a lot yeah. more sense yeah yeah absolutely okay well we've covered a lot that wraps up this week's fintech insider thank you so much to today's guests where can people Find out a bit more about you. Andrew, start with you. Yeah, Andrew Brown. Uh, come find me at checkhq.com uh, or on LinkedIn, Andrew Brown, CEO of Check. Awesome. Steve? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn um, talking about market and, and payment events in EMEA. So we had a, a live stream this week uh, that covered everything you'd expect and, and maybe what you didn't in a payments conversation from a bank. So we talked about market trends, PSD3, structured data, and also my Saturday sourdough bread strategy 
Taylor Swift and resiliency. So payments are are in and shaping all of those places, really. They're in more places than you think. Sauda and Swifty chat. No? I'm, I'm there for that. Um, Nicole, what about you? Yeah, yeah. cultural phenomenons you're bringing together there, Stu. I, I love it. Uh, <laughs> but it's so true. You know, it's funny because in my newsletter, which you could find on fintechisfem.co and sign up for free um, over there if you check out my website, um, I'm kind of always writing about the convergence of finance, technology, societal equity, gender parity, and and how do we actually create revenue driving and profitability uh, in, the, in the fintech sector. And, you know, sometimes I talk about Beyonce. Sometimes we talk about Taylor Swift. Sometimes we talk about those things too because fintech touches it all. So what I'm trying to say is that I'm very close in degree to maybe to Beyonce possibly. Okay, (laughs) that sold it for me. So sign up for my newsletter. (laughs) Go for it, absolutely. Ask me, I'm on LinkedIn, Kate Moody or email kate.lnfest.com. I have no connections at all to Beyonce, sadly, but happy to chat about fintech and financial services anytime. Thank you, our listeners, for listening. Join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at learnfest.com. Thanks very much. Goodbye.